You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. All right, well, uh, welcome. Uh, welcome to you all. This is uh, the annual lecture in U.S. history for this year. Um, and I first need to say just that this is funded by the University of Dublin Fund, which is basically Trinity graduates who are in the U.S. This hasn't been held since 2019 for reasons, you know, which I think you can probably easily enough guess. But it's it's lovely to you know pick this back back up again. It's a series where we bring prominent U.S. historians to, to address topics that have some contemporary you know um, uh, impact in terms of our understanding of American uh, culture, society, politics. And uh, it's my great pleasure uh, today to introduce uh, Nelson Lichtenstein, our speaker. Uh, now, Nelson was my uh, undergraduate advisor back when I was an undergraduate at the University of Virginia. And I first met Nelson in uh, 1996. So this would have been during the Clinton administration. And around that time, I wrote my first uh, political uh, article in which I uh, said that uh, you know people on the left should not vote for Bill Clinton in the 96 uh, election after the Defense of Marriage Act and uh, welfare uh, you know reform and all the rest of it uh, and I certainly had the impression of Clinton as I was you know growing into my sense of uh, politics at the time as someone who was not you know uh, very progressive at all and much to my dismay then I w was uh, actually at a conference where Bill Clinton had given a video message. This was a conference about American progressivism. He gave a video message and then the person speaking after Bill Clinton was me, uh, <laughs> which is a hard act to follow. But I said that I didn't think of him, that he was particularly uh, progressive at all. I think Nelson's going to tell us that, you know, maybe it was a bit more complicated than that, you know, the, the Clinton administration is not uh, a simple story of a move to the, to the right. Uh, now, Nelson Lichtenstein is a research professor at the University of California, uh, Santa Barbara, and he's the author of really too many uh, books to, to mention, but uh, I'll mention a couple. Uh, the Most Dangerous Man in Detroit, that's a biography of the uh, very important labor leader, Walter Ruther, and uh, The Retail Revolution, which is about how Walmart uh, transformed American uh, capitalism. Um, okay, Nelson. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, and I'm delighted to be here um, uh, at Trinity to help, uh, and I want to thank Dan and, and others who organized this, this conference. It's, it's a lot of fun. We're having that during the day uh, before this, uh, and to help, to, to help think about the history and character and fate of American liberalism. And I've labeled my reconsideration of Bill Clinton's presidency a, a fabulous failure because I don't think one can comfortably label that president and many of his close collaborators uh, either corporate Democrats or neoliberal ideologues on the day, on the day they marched into the White House, <laughs> on that day, uh, their ambitions were more progressive, even if the execution of many of their initiatives fell short, some by self-inflicted wounds. Uh, this, this may give the study that Judith Stein inaugurated. She died, unfortunately, in the 2000. Um, 17. She just begun this, and then I was asked to take it over. She, she just, you know, kind of had preliminary notes and a very rough 
uh, first couple of chapters, but you know. But anyway, I took took it over, uh, and uh, the cheat inaugurated, and and I have completed. So it's some contemporary relevance because today in the United States, an eighty-year-old president is pushing forward people and programs that challenge much that has fallen under the neoliberal rubric: unfettered free trade, corporate uh, laissez-faire and welfare austerity. Here's Judith, um, and I think her most relevant book was actually Running Steel, Running America. She wrote that in 1999 uh, in terms of what I'm doing. And her, she began this book as a study of race of, in the steel industry, why the steel industry was bad on the race, why the, the uh, civil rights uh, initiatives and, and various judicial opinions had failed to uh, advance African-Americans uh, to the position they deserved in the steel industry and began that way. But the book ended up a study of what I'm going to talk about, really, industrial policy, uh, macroeconomics, uh, uh, you know, uh, capitalism. Uh, so she, you know, and I think, and I think that's a, a, a good way to think about some of these things. Um, so uh, the, the Biden administration has just picked up some of the ideas proposed and, and abandoned during the first months and years of the Clinton era. Uh, for many in, in his campaign, in Clinton's plan, believe that the management and reform of American capitalism which would hardly be left to the market alone. It was a task that required plan and purpose. One could glimpse that expansive promise when on December 14th and 15th, 1992, uh, the Clinton transition team assembled more than 300 of the nation's leading economists, executives, politicians, and policy entrepreneurs in Little Rock for an economic summit. Almost all agreed with camp with uh, campaign strategist James Carville's so now famous catchphrase, the economy stupid, I'll get, get to that in a second, the economy stupid. It was time for the government to offer a forceful set of initiatives designed to increase the productivity of, of capital and labor, transform key industry sectors, and enhance the quality of American life. We must revitalize and rebuild our economy, said the president-elect, but we clearly face structural Problems. That's really a code word for 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 you know for 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 reshaping the economy because the market's not doing structural problems that today threaten our ability to harness the energies of our people. Bill Clinton took notes, asked questions, and offered his views about topics ranging from infrastructure to interest rates, technology to taxes, energy, and the environment. On display were an adventuresome range of ideas about what to do now that the Democrats once again controlled the White House and Congress after nearly two decades of progressive frustration, defeat, and economic uh, dislocation under every president since Richard Nixon. There was there were plenty of corporate chieftains in attendance, not so much to balance the academics and think tank liberals with a more conservative outlook, but to demonstrate that, that the underperformance of the American economy was so debilitating that they too had a stake in efforts to rehabilitate industries and enterprises, especially those threatened by new competitors abroad and burdened by growing, um, growing health care expenses at home. To them, the end of the Cold War hardly generated a sense of triumphalism and certainly not an end of history. Now I could show you. So here's Bill and Hillary in Arkansas, where these issues were always in his, in his top of his mind in trying to develop Arkansas in one way or another. 
Uh, and, and here is James Carmel's famous uh, 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 statement that he made and put on the wall of the campaign headquarters, the economy is stupid, which meant stay away from culture war I uh, issues on the one side that some of the Republicans wanted and keep focused on you know, re revitalizing the economy. And they put out a pamphlet, Putting People First, which had that inside. Uh, here's Bill Clinton at that economic conference. Uh, and uh, you know, it lasted for two days and went on and on. And Oops, uh, I, let me get, I'll come back to that in a second. Um, uh, uh, well, actually, no, 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 no. Here, we, here we are, this is it, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, so it was Paul Songus, uh, a rival of Clinton, uh, Clinton uh, really not, a kind of a moderate Democrat from Massachusetts, who coined this phrase, uh, the Cold War is over, Japan and Germany won, and then Clinton totally agreed with that, and uh, that this was this is what they 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 thought at the at the at, in the at the dawn of the the the, the, the well the, the new American century uh, that there were other varieties of capitalism in the world more competitive, dynamic, and socially cohesive than the version championed by Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher would prove a powerful motivating impulse for the effort to manage American capitalism during the first years of the Clinton presidency. He'd been governor of a poor southern rural state, spending the bulk of his time seeking some way to attract industry, raise wages, and increase worker skills and education. Clinton visited Germany, Japan, Italy, and South Korea, looking for models and investment. He was therefore amenable to an industrial policy, in that phrase, that it deployed state policy to advance economic development. Clinton's appointment of several of the most high-profile advocates of such a program, and these included Robert Reich at the Department of Labor, Laura Tyson as chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, Jeffrey Garten in the U.S. Trade Office and Ira Magaziner in charge of health reform was an indication of the degree to which his view, this view, enjoyed purchase within his new administration. Well, actually, here's the here's here's a, a this was a kind of the kind of thing that was shown at the at the Clinton summit. Real wages have declined. That's the problem. What are we going to do about it? You know, uh, and uh, that's just one index of, of the many maladies that the Clintons and Clinton and their team uh, sought sought to rectify. And here we go. And of course, uh, yeah, here we go. Japan, you know, seemed to be the threat. Uh, you know, if, if there are other varieties of capitalism more successful than that of the United States, in this t 30 years ago, Japan was was the, um, uh, the the key example. And these are some of the, the books, of sensationalistic books that came out at that time. Uh, and here is Robert Reich and Ira Magaziner as young uh, sort of policy entrepreneurs uh, who would both join the Clinton uh, 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 White House, uh, uh, Reich and, at Labor and, and Ira Magaziner in the health. And where do I have? Oh, yeah, here we are. And here's uh, Laura Tyson. Uh, she was a professor of economics at Berkeley, and, 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 and she wrote a book, you know, which, which was very influential uh, with, with Clinton, Trade Conflict in the High Technology Industries, Who's Bashing Whom, How We're Going to you know, Counter the Japanese Threat. She, she got the job as head of the Council of Economic Advisors over many more prestigious academics like Larry Summers and Paul Krugman, uh, who were, you know, uh, much more, uh, you know, uh, honored and, 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 and credentialed, but she had the, the politics that, that Clinton uh, wanted, you know, uh, to ma manage trade. Uh, here's uh, Jeffrey Garten, um, uh, who, who was uh, in the uh, trade representative, did a lot of, and, and he wrote a book called A Cold Peace, uh, America, Japan, Germany, and the Struggle for Supremacy, all on this theme of, you know, American capitalism isn't working, maybe there are models abroad we can emulate, we've got to do something about it, let's see. 
and here, here, Robert Reich. Reich uh, was also really, in some ways, the most, the main advocate of industrial policy. Wrote many books. I'll get into. Uh, he thought training was the key thing, and so uh, he he wanted to emulate German uh, apprenticeship programs and things of that sort in the United States. Uh, well, we'll get to, we'll get the help. Um, so today, this aspect of the Clinton presidency has been largely discounted, if not forgotten. Most liberals see his presidency as a betrayal of, of the progressive, progressivism that was once the hallmark of the New Deal and the Great Society. Bill Clinton was the first Democratic president since FDR to win two consecutive terms, but that accomplishment seems merely a product of his accommodation to an ideology that privileged trade liberalization, financial deregulation, a privatization of government services, and the growth of class inequality. Historians and journalists have labeled President Clinton the Democratic Eisenhower, uh, the popular leader of a political party whose electoral success was predicated upon a wholesale accommodation to the ideology of its opponents. Clinton's 1996 declaration that the era of big government is over seemed, seemingly ratified Reaganite, Reaganite conservatism and in the process transformed the politics and policy of that conservative president into a hegemonic ethos that liberated global finance and eviscerated Keynesian liberalism. Um, but this neoliberal project never unfolded in a seamless fashion, and certainly not as an ideology springing full-blown from the mind of a Frederick Hayek or a Milton Friedman. The capitalist world, quote, stumbled toward neoliberalism through a series of, quote, gyrations and chaotic experiments, wrote David Harvey, who more than anyone else made popular the word itself. Harvey recognized that neither Bill Clinton nor Tony Blair were entirely true believers, emphasizing the degree to which these two third-way politicians found themselves in a political world where their room for maneuver was so limited, that they could not help but advance the neoliberal project, if sometimes against their own better instincts. As Stuart Hall famously put it, hegemonizing is hard work. My work therefore explains why and how Clintonite progressivism ended in failure and why that failure haunts us still. The failure was actually twofold. In the first instance, Clinton liberals faced defeat when seeking to enact progressive reforms from health insurance to labor rights, from industrial policy at home to managed trade abroad. Not only because of fierce opposition from Republicans and conservatives, but because uh, the political and economic terrain upon which they hoped to construct a more progressive America was growing more problematic. While they came to champion a technologically innovative new economy, and that was a real buzz phrase in the 90s, that Silicon Valley-inspired vision proved of far less weight than the more prosaic economic shift exemplified by the demise of General Motors and the rise of Walmart and the breakup of AT&T and the rise of Pizza Hut. You don't have to go to Silicon Valley to see a new economy. It's right there in Arkansas and everywhere else. But an even greater failure may, may well have arisen from what the Clinton administration actually did accomplish, creating a surplus in the federal budget, downsizing the government workforce, enacting an ambitious crime control law, passing the North American Free Trade Agreement, constructing a pathway for China to join the World Trade Organization and deregulating both Wall Street finance and America's vast telecommunications 
um, uh, infrastructure. Wall Street boomed and the nation uh, uh, boomed and unemployment dropped. But in the end, none of these reforms moved the nation toward economic stability, social equality, um, and the global democratic resurgence that the president and his chief economic advisors had promised. Trade with China, they had prophesied, would undoubtedly create the conditions for a free press, um, uh, entrepreneurial freedom, and the autonomy, individual and organizational, uh, necessary to sustain a robust civil society in that ancient nation. A democratic effervescence was sure to accompany all those new cell phones, stock markets, and supermarkets. Moreover, virtually every legislative victory scored by the Clinton administration, especially in the years after 1994, was achieved over the strong objections of a substantial proportion of his own party. On many Clinton initiatives, especially those involving trade and financial deregulation, the White House relied on Republican votes, while a large fraction of the Democrats, sometimes even a majority, stood in opposition to their own president. Clinton was a dreadful party leader. To illustrate some of these themes, I'd like to offer portraits of two individuals who played important roles in the Clinton White House. The first is Ira Magaziner, an old friend of Bill, who led the effort to design and pass Clinton's ambitious uh, health uh, provision reform. And the second is Robert Rubin, a former Goldman Sachs executive who as chair of the National Economic Council and then Treasury Secretary would unquestionably become the most influential figure in the Clinton cabinet. Magaziner's thought and work embodied many of the industrial policy ideas that had animated the Clinton campaign and the excitement he generated upon becoming president. Rubin, on the other hand, proved a sophisticated advocate of for balanced budgets, free trade, capital mobility, and the deregulation of banking and finance. When he returned to Wall Street in mid-1999, President Clinton declared Rubin the greatest Secretary of Treasury since Alexander Hamilton. Um, Ira Magaziner came of age in a world whose ideological landscape had been saturated with new left attitudes and, and atmospherics. This was Brown University in the 1960s. Then as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, he became good friends with Robert Reich and Bill Clinton. He dropped out of Oxford to organize against the Vietnam War. And then while back in America, he moved with several of his Brown classmates to gritty, deindustrializing Brockton, Massachusetts, where they sought to transform the city in much the same spirit in which they had earlier made an impress upon undergraduate life at Brown. But it did not take long for the Brown crew to abandon the project after a magaziner's group recognized that competition from low, the low-wage South and abroad would undercut their effort to revitalize manufacturing in a single town. So in 1973, at age 25, Magaziner began working for the Boston Consulting Group, one of the premier management advisors in the United States. They hired him as part of an effort to reap some of the energy and insights that had emerged from the 60s generation. Magaziner soon became a steel industry expert, an admirer of Japan's government-led reindustrialization but also a critic of that nation's predatory export drive. 
But the young magaziner was even an, an even bigger critic of American management. American Steel was a closed circle, he wrote, where a few experts and executives talked only to each other. He blamed the government's hands-off policy and the free market ideology that stood behind it for the bankruptcies that swept the steel industry and the overall troubles faced by U.S. manufacturing enterprise. Magaziner's conception of industrial policy was to urge upon governments, and especially the U.S., the same kind of strategic thinking that the Boston Consulting Group had proffered to individual companies. Management, after all, was still a visible hand, a planning apparatus that mobilized capital where it was thought to do the most good. The same outlook, outlook might well work for nation states. But this was not New Deal planning. Industrial policy advocates like Magaziner thought that the kind of government-sponsored development projects, TVA would be the preeminent example, example, big dams built by the government, or the macroeconomic policies pursued by the Keynesian liberals from the 40s to the 60s were no longer needed or working. They wanted, the industrial policy advocates, wanted to focus policy on those strategically critical corporations and industries that nurtured so many traditional good-paying jobs and upon which American trade prowess depended. And this kind of industrial policy also meant that trade had to be managed especially with Japan, where close, embrocated relationships between banks, industry, and government shielded that economy from many U.S. exports. Both Laura Tyson, Clinton's first head of the Council of Economic Advisors, and Jeffrey Garton, I showed you, an administration trade negotiator, um, uh, were advocates of such a muscular trade strategy. But when it came to industrial policy, Health provision reform was even more important. By the 1990s, let me see what's my next slide here. Here we go. Oh, there's okay. Well, we'll get all right there. That's Hillary talking to Congress uh, with uh, Richard Gephardt next to her. Um, uh, uh, by the 1990s, many thought the time had finally come when a universal system of health insurance commanded the support not only of those who had long sought a New, New Deal style expansion of the welfare state, but within the world of business insurance and medical provision itself, sectors of the economy once historically hostile to such a social innovation. Not only were health care costs increasing far more rapidly than inflation, but the burden was falling with greater weight upon big business and government. Auto companies complained that they were spending more money on health insurance than steel. Bill Clinton delegated to Ira Magaziner the task of working out a health care program that would ac accommodate these powerful stakeholders. Magaziner had been involved in a Rhode Island effort to expand Medicaid coverage. Uh, in the process, he had observed enormous inefficiencies and rent-seeking behavior among regional hospitals and insurers. Uh, the Clintons uh, and Magaziner thought a single-payer uh, really basically a, 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 a universal system paid by the government, a bridge too far, if only because it would require an enormous tax increase, which Clinton was unwilling to, 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 to do at all. Um, tax increase. Instead, they settled on something called managed competition. 
that would deploy market forces to ratchet down health insurance costs and improve hospital efficiency within a set of regional markets in which companies large and small would combine their buying power into health insurance purchasing alliances to win from the insurance industry lower rates and better service. An employer mandate would ensure that all companies, except the very smallest, would provide health insurance for their employees. Um, the ideology ostensibly motivating this reform tracked far to the right. Oh, I'll get that in a second. The ideology motivating this reform ostensibly tracked far to the right. Quote, the forces of the marketplace would drive down costs, asserted President Clinton. We've got to quit having the federal government try to micromanage health care. But the Clintonites would quickly realize that no reform could work without the direct exercise of state power, both to impose what they called a global budget, really a ceiling, a price ceiling, and to assemble a corporatist governing apparatus, the central feature of which was an effort to thwart, to thwart unfettered market forces. Um, so they talked one thing, but in, but in reality, and I'll show you that what their plan was, was actually much more to the left. Magaziner and the Clintons thought that they could count on the support from those high-wage business sectors that already provided health insurance. The new employer mandate would cost them nothing, but instead spread insurance costs equally among all employers, including the low-wage, low-benefit firms like Walmart and Pizza Hut. Thus, Magaziner consulted frequently with the Chamber of Commerce and the National Association of Manufacturers. The big insurance companies were also on board, since they were now assured of a vast increase in their clientele. Indeed, the managed competition concept was largely their idea, and Magaziner was hopeful that a slice of the Republican Party would go along, if only to accommodate uh, their traditional big business constituency. Quote, right now, Big companies pay all of the health costs of small companies that are not providing insurance, argued one pro-reform businessman. It's another form of tax. And here, uh, I just showed you, so it's really, the, the, the dynamics here in, in terms of political economy is manufacturing, they're all for the reform, versus retail. Well, they aren't do, pay, doing anything. So unions versus non-union, capital intensive versus labor intensive, healthcare providers versus freeloaders. I mean, this, this, and this will, Ford versus Burger King. This is, this is the dynamic that will both, that both Clinton's thought would make it work and also which made it, uh, subverted it, subverted it. But, but competition within even a well-structured market proved an illusory pricing mechanism when it came to lowering health provision costs under the Clinton plan. When Clinton and Magaziner used the phrase managed competition, under a global budget, they expected that price competition between hospitals, insurers, and other parts of the healthcare system would be primarily responsible for driving down overall costs. But that was a new and untested fiscal experiment, one that the Congressional Budget Office could not endorse. Um, by the early 1990s, CBO scoring of any prospective law was politically and fiscally essential, both to gain some sense of its cost and the taxes that might be needed. Thus, the February 1993 appearance of CBO Director Robert Reichauer before the House Committee on Ways and Means, son of the ambassador to Japan in an earlier era, was of signal uh, uh, importance. 
Reichauer himself was a healthcare financing expert. Uh, he could not say that managed competition would work. It was a structure that does not exist anywhere in the world. <laughs> the whole experiment was a pig in a poke. Reichauer made clear that it was not really the newness of the, of the managed care legislation that made cost estimates difficult. Instead, it was a much more fundamental, fundamental. Markets themselves were inherently indeterminate, involving thousands of decisions among many political and economic actors. They were fuzzy, while the CBO wanted clear, specific, automatic, and, enf and enforceable regulatory provisions. You know, they wanted a black letter, you know. Hillary Clinton may well have agreed. Although she publicly derided single-payer advocates, and I remember that very well, the first lady could see the logic of Reichauer's analysis, telling her husband at a White House dinner that managed competition was a crock and single-payer necessary, uh, necessary to really make this thing work. Thus, Magaziner made price controls a central part of the Clinton health plan, something Obama would not do. Uh, the new health insurance purchasing alliances would not just buy insurance in bulk, but would have the power to enforce premium caps, price controls by another name. These measures were among the most controversial in our bill, Magaziner later admitted, and continued significantly to the characterization of our bill as, quote, big government and bureaucratic. Reichauer's CBO certainly agreed, concluding a year later that the Clinton plan would now work, it would work, but this had nothing to do with managed competition or markets, you know, love of markets, because the newly revised Clinton plan would establish a universal entitlement to health insurance that would be largely financed by mandatory payments resulting from an exercise of sovereign power. The newly empowered health alliances, said Reichauer, would operate primarily as agents of the federal government, not as a private market-making entities. Market failure, or its prospect, had driven Clinton's managed competition scheme towards something resembling a single-payer system. It wasn't the National Health Service, okay? It wasn't, you know, but it was, it was, it was much closer to, to continental Europe. As one, as one might expect, let me see what I have Oh yeah, here we go. We'll get that. As one might expect, this opened the Clinton plan to withering denunciation from newly aggressive conservatives in the Republican Party, not to mention a large cohort of conservative Democrats. But it was within the business community that the Clinton plan faced its most consequential opposition. American capitalism had transformed itself dramatically since the last era of healthcare reform in the 1960s. And now, the low-benefit companies in the swollen service sector, especially fast food and retail, bitterly resisted any employer mandate. The big insurance companies would not tolerate the new price controls, and the smaller insurers, who made money by cherry-picking, the most healthy and profitable clients saw their entire business model under fatal attack. They were responsible for the infamous series of Harry and Louise TV um, uh, commercials, which equated employer mandates and cost controls with a cumbersome and intrusive federal government. 
Um, this is a, a shot from those 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 commercials. Maybe I don't know. Maybe you, you don't. Maybe you don't know them about them in the UK, but they were infamous in the United States. And they were all they were the they were the smaller insurance companies that put them on. Um, uh, indeed, the fate of the Clinton health insurance plan turned into a referendum on the capacity of the state to resolve virtually any economic problem. Uh, uh, or, or advance a welfare state agenda. This was the theme that Bill, uh, Bill Crystal, then, although not now, but then a determined neoconservative ideologue advanced when he put out a stream of memos arguing that any Republican compromise with Clinton on health care would revive the reputation of the party that spends and regulates the Democrats as the generous protector of middle class interests. Uh, this kind of political pressure uh, led to a virtual coup within the business associations with which Magaziner and the Clintons had sought to strike a corporatist deal. Uh, and, and basically, basically they, 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 the, Repub I mean, but the Republican Party now lobbied the business associations, not the other way around, and, and, and they abandoned ship. Um, uh, I, I'm going to skip a little bit. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay, uh, yeah, the fact that Robert Rubin and Ira Magaziner both held important posts in the same administration says a lot about the contested character of what we have come to call neoliberalism on the global stage as well as the domestic. Rubin was a Democrat who had grown up in Miami Beach, but his roots were in New York, where his grandfather ran the most powerful Democratic political club in Brooklyn. Rubin's mother was a civil rights militant in South Florida. Uh, she voted for Henry Wallace in 1948, and her son would vote for George McGovern 24 years later. By his own account, Rubin was a liberal who sought a, quote, society that works for everybody instead of for just a few. When serving in the Clinton administration, he defended the earned income tax credit for the working poor and opposed the president's controversial welfare reforms on the grounds, he wrote, that capitalism creates victims as well as victors. Rubin got a law degree, but spent a quarter century at Goldman Sachs, all the while raising money for the Democrats. Um, uh, and, and, okay, I want to not take too much time, so let me just, just say, uh, yeah, raising time for the Democrats, okay, 16th um, uh, And he was in favor of, of uh, 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 he was worried about uh, uh, budget deficits crowding out uh, other other uh, investment and thereby raising interest rates. So one of his key things he wanted was to to make sure that that if, you know, budgets were roughly balanced so that, that 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 interest rates would remain low because because then the, these budget deficits wouldn't crowd out other kinds of investment. That was he was he was much worried about that, and that was kind of conventional wisdom uh, on uh, on Wall Street. Um, but. You can't fathom Robert Rubin in the Clinton cabinet without understanding what he did to make his money at Goldman Sachs. There, in the 1960s, he had been put on the risk arbitrage desk, a then innovative realm of finance that the New York Times called a chancy, boomer bust corner of the securities market. Arbitrage had existed for centuries. Uh, buy at the lower price in one market and sell at the higher price in another. By the 1970s, however, 
this commodity arbitrage was being overshadowed by a far more com compact, comp complex system known as risk or merger arbitrage. Corporate conglomeration, mergers, and the quest for shareholder value had unleashed an unprecedented wave of stock swaps, cash tender bids, bids recapitalizations, divestitures of corporate divisions, and outright purchase of one company by another. There were some 35,000 mergers and acquisitions between 1976 and 1990. A third of the companies on the Fortune 500 list of major corporations in 1980 were no longer there a decade later. Goldman Sachs had hired Rubin because he'd been a lawyer who understood antitrust. That was an important skill set at any time, but even more valuable after the Reagan administration gave a green light to intra-industry mergers in 1982. It was a nerve-wracking profession, wrote Rubin in his 2003 memoir, but somehow or other I was able to take it in reasonable stride. Arbitrage suited me, not only temper temperamentally, but also as a way of thinking. Indeed, when it came to the fundamentals of financial capitalism, Rubin could see no other world than one that enhanced capital mobility, financial deregulation, and the monetarization of corporate <laughs> assets. He thought progressive and efficient the plethora of innovative securities designed to hedge risk and leverage capital. Um, at, the, at the Little Rock Economic Summit, Rubin had clashed with the old Keynesian James Tobin, whose advocacy of a large economic stimulus, Rubin thought it a detriment to the, quote, restoration of business confidence. Rubin successfully fought the, the industry, industrial policy advocates when it came to balancing the administration's first budget. Like those liberals, Rubin thought economic growth far too sluggish. But the idea of using government to channel capital into uses considered most economically productive or socially useful was anathema. Um, when Magaziner told the cabinet that a successful health uh, reform would save tens of billions, Rubin discounted the idea entirely. Instead, he thought that if interest rates could be kept low enough, and here he was, had an alliance with Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan, then upwards of a trillion dollars of new investment might be forthcoming. It was during these debates in early 1993, as the full cost of deficit reduction became apparent, that Bill Clinton raged, uh, raged, there's some rage, uh, <laughs> raged against the fiscal cage uh, in which Rubin and Greenspan had imprisoned administration policy. You mean to tell me that the success of the program and my re-election hinges on the Federal Reserve and a bunch of bond traders, he used the ex expletive, um, because they would be the ones that determine long-term interest rates. As it turned out, Clinton, Rubin, and Greenspan were riding a deflationary wave much to their liking. In the aftermath of the 1979 Volcker shock, interest rates uh, were in a long decline, a product not of the budget, balanced or not, but of a larger set of forces, global and domestic. As Joseph Stiglitz, a chair of Clinton's uh, Council of Economic Advisors summarized the macroeconomic scene. Interest rates were falling even before Clinton took office. Uh, the forces taming inflation, weaker unions, increased international competition, increasing productivity were already in play, and it was the lower inflation as well as the deficit reduction that lowered long-term 
uh, interest rates. But that interest rate decline held its own dangers, and not just for the rentiers who wanted higher returns on their static capital. As the industrial policy advocates of the 80s and 90s had argued, the market was a highly imperfect mechanism when it came to capital investment. As an angry and frustrated Robert Reich wrote to his president when it had become clear that the Clinton left would lose the budget fight, American corporations will not use resources freed by deficit cuts to invest in the future productivity of all Americans. Instead, Reich feared business will speculate, pad executive salaries, hire consultants to bust unions, and build new factories abroad. Given that failure to find genuinely productive uh, domestic investments, uh, capital would flow toward a variety of speculative bubbles. This had begun with the hyper-expansion of the U.S. savings and loan institutions in the early 1980s and their mass bankruptcy at the end of that decade. In the 1990s, the tripling of the stock market generated a wealth effect that's, that sustained consumer purchasing power. And of course, the speculative bubble in real estate and related financial um, instruments in the run-up to the crisis of 2008 constituted and yet another gigantic asset bubble that was sure to bust. Low interest rates, high stock prices, bust. Uh, financial danger signs were already apparent in the 1990s. As, the, as early as 1994, uh, the rise of deregulated derivatives, um, uh, Fortune magazine called them alligators in a swamp, had created bankruptcy and havoc from Orange County to Procter & Gamble. And just a few years later, an East Asian financial crisis threatened to plunge South Korea, Thailand, and Indonesia, and then Brazil and Russia into fiscal crisis and default. The root cause was the enormous growth of the short-term hot money, money that poured into and then out of these sometimes fragile economies. Yeah, here's one, here's, here's Thailand. Okay, uh, okay, we'll get to this, okay. Um, Robert, Rubin, yeah, Robert Rubin and like-minded officials at the Treasury, at the Fed, and at the International Monetary Fund were not unaware of these dangers. In 1998, the Treasury Department published a long report American Finance for the 21st Century, with a Robert Rubin preface, written to advance the proposition that domestic banking mergers and deregulation were virtually inevitable in a world where opposition to market forces is, quote, becoming an increasingly futile task. The report argued that the constraints of the New Deal were now entirely dysfunctional. The goal of policy in the coming century should be to encourage rather than to suppress competition, and innovation in finance. Of course, in such a world, markets at home and abroad were far from perfect. Indeed, they were, uh, they were uh, prone to periodic crisis. Uh, Robert Rubin had probably heard little of Hyman Minsky, uh, who died in 1996. But the Treasury Secretary was here putting, into, putting forth a sentiment that seemed schooled in the work of that radical economist. Minsky's explanation for capitalism's recurrent booms and busts seemed remarkably in tune with the economic reality that characterized the decades bracketing the turn of the, of the millennium. Minsky thought financial instability emerged out of the logic of capitalist markets and the investor psychology that drove them. Following a crisis or slump, investors' expectations are at, their, are at first cautious, but then become increasingly positive, even exuberant leading to speculation, uh, a drawdown of cash reserves, and the eventual crash. 
In an unregulated environment, Minsky explained financial bubbles were inevitable. Thus, the crisis, the bust, and the follow-on recession serve a purpose in the operation of a free market economy, even as they wreak havoc on the lives of millions of ordinary men and women. Those periodic panics of which the 1997 East Asian meltdown was a classic example, discipline investors and transform, if only temporarily, their mentality. But government bailouts are also essential to this boom and bust cycle. Without such an infusion of liquidity, those economic downturns might wreak permanent, permanent um, damage and in the process generate a counter movement hostile to markets along the historic lines delineated by Karl Polanyi in his classic work, The Great Transformation. Rubin and his comrades at Treasury understood all this. As the American Finance Report put it, government would administer the financial mechanisms necessary for failure containment, which Rubin's Treasury Department counterposed to failure prevention. The difference was crucial not because one regime favored a big, inclusive government role and the other did not, but because this example of neoliberal um, statecraft demonstrated that a coercive exercise of governmental power was absolutely necessary to contain those disruptive and dangerous upheavals that were endemic to the free play of finance. Larry Summers often an analogized the emergence of global financial markets to the invention of the jet airplane. World travel was now rapid, comfortable, and cheap, and most of the time travelers could get uh, to their destination in safety. But the crashes, when they occur, are that much more spectacular. Still, no set of um, uh, prudent standards, sound banking regulations, bankruptcy laws, etc., could prevent countries from getting themselves into very profound financial difficulties at the sovereign level. In short, we need systems that can handle failure because until the system uh, is safe for failure, we will not be able to count on success. That's Larry Rubin. And of course, those failures had another virtue, offering the IMF and the U.S. government um, and the U.S. Treasury periodic opportunities to condition a rescue package so as to reshape trade, banking, and governmental regulations to more closely resemble a world in which an Anglo-American model was the hegemonic norm. Under the financial regime sought by Rubin, there will be no other varieties of capitalism. Rubin, Greenspan, and Summers had the chance to put these ideas into practice almost immediately. Let me just summarize. There were two financial crises, one in East Asia, the other the failure of long-term capital uh, uh, investments, both you know, hot money running around. Basically, Rubin got on the phone and, told, and, 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 and Greenspan too, and told the bankers in New York, you must uh, you know, stop, uh, bail out these guys, uh, and, and if you don't do that, you're going to lose all your money. And essentially what Rubin was saying, and Greenspan is, we're exercising sovereign power, the same phrase Reichauer used uh, when it came to making the healthcare plan work. We're going to, we're, you, we, we're, we, we insist you, you know, we're going to, you, you're going to obey the government. Uh, the market is not going to be free. It's going to be managed in this crisis. Uh, and, and, and in fact, both, that's what happened in both times. The, the, the big banks in New York had to pony up money both to, to, to salvage South Korea and also long-term capital, preventing a, a larger uh, a, a crisis. And they did it, at, at, not at the behest, at the orders of the U.S. government. Um, uh, so, okay, um, 
Okay. Well, okay. Uh, and 10 years later, when a cohort of Robert Rubin acolytes orchestrated the containment of an even larger crisis, the social and economic fallout would fall at home with equally devastating political consequences. I mean, the, the abroad, uh, South Korea was devastated, Thailand was devastated for, for several years, Mexico earlier. Uh, during the years after 1994, the drift toward neoliberalism was much encouraged by the widespread view that the United States was indeed entering. Let me get. Oh, here. We go. Oh, here. Oh, well, here. You got to see this. This is the famous Time magazine uh, uh, cover with uh, Greenspan, Rubin, and Summers. The Committee to Save the World. This is after after these these uh, cajoling of American banks to bail out South Korea. Uh, and uh, okay, there's that. And uh, okay, we'll get to this in a second. Uh, 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 that in this period after and in the late late 90s, um, this idea of a new economy captivated the ideas of everyone, from Newt Gingrich uh, and Alan Greenspan on the libertarian right to Robert Reich and Lester Thoreau on the industrial policy left. Al Gore and Bill Clinton were on board as well. The idea would ex expire even before the Great Recession of 2008, but in the meantime, it constituted a powerful illusion. When Clinton and Gore opened their Little Rock Economic Summit in December 1992, uh, a sense of crisis pervaded the discussion of how the American version of world capitalism might be transformed. Seven and a half years later, in April 2000, Clinton convened a White House conference on the new economy. There, a techno-triumphalism animated the conclave, with Clinton announcing, we meet in the midst of the longest economic expansion of our history and an economic transformation as profound as that that as profound as that that led us into the industrial revolution at little rock the leadoff speaker had been robert solo the keynesian theorist of economic growth at the 2000 white house conference it was abby joseph cohen the famed hyper bullish stock market analyst from goldman sachs um, bill clinton told that white house conference I believe the computer and the internet give us a chance to move more people out of poverty more quickly than at any time in all of human history. I, 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 I'm almost ending. Uh, Rubin actually didn't believe in any of that stuff, but but this new economy ideology was the was the popular kind of uh, gloss that 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 gave uh, kind of uh, legitimacy to the Rubenite uh, internationalism. The world Robert Rubin sought to construct has indeed been been put in place, but today it no longer commands the hegemonic ascent it seemed to enjoy uh, uh, a quarter century ago. Few things that capital mobility, new technology, or greater international trade are, are creating the frictionless, fabulous world some projected in the immediate post-war years. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the industrial policy initiatives explored in the early Clinton era no longer seem quite so freckless so at odds with the main drift of politics and policy. Brian Dees, who held the same post in the Biden administration that Rubin held, first held under Clinton, proved a vigorous advocate for an American industrial strategy during his first two-year ten two tenure there. More important, the trillion-dollar appropriations uh, of the last three years, sometimes enacted with bipartisan support, have been designed to keep pandemic-threatened enterprise afloat, sustain working class incomes, rebuild key industries, strengthen infrastructure, fund health insurance, and fight climate change. An agenda not all that different from that of Ira Magaziner 30 years before. We have hardly arrived at anything approaching a new consensus, 
But the internal debates of the Clinton presidency can now be examined in a new light, one in which a neoliberal world no longer seems the wave of the future. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you.